Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jacob Marley is dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the podcast you are about to listen to. On Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jacob Marley is Dead, a podcast where two friends discuss various adaptations of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I'm your host, John. I will not be using my last name on the podcast because I'm employed by a school. So for liability purposes, we're just going to be going by John. Likewise for my co-host, James, who you will be hearing from uh, in a little bit. We are very excited to be getting this podcast off the ground. Um, The idea behind this podcast is uh, that we are going to be discussing various adaptations of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, primarily film or television adaptations that have been made, comparing them, discussing different approaches that directors have taken, and talking about what each individual adaptation adds to or takes away from the original text. Now, James and I recorded a discussion uh, around uh, the history of this text, the history of Charles Dickens, um, who he was, where he comes from, and how he uh, conceived, wrote, and published this book. But due to an error on my part, uh, the recording that uh, we created was corrupted. So uh, rather than bring us both back into the discussion booth to try to have that discussion, I'm going to give you a truncated version of the conversation that we had regarding these topics. Following that, we'll take a short break, and then we'll be moving on to our discussion of uh, the first half of the novella A Christmas Carol. Thank you so much for joining us. Charles John Huffam Dickens was born on the 7th of February, 1812, at One Mile End Terrace in the town of Portsmouth. He was the second of eight children, and his father was a clerk in the Naval Pay Office, temporarily stationed in the district. Dickens's father was not always responsible with his money, and his financial maneuverings ended up putting the family into debtor's prison when Charles was still a young boy. Some of his formative years were spent in this environment and had a profound influence on his later literary works. During this time, he was quite enamored with the stories Robinson Crusoe and the Arabian Nights, along with other books which he read and reread, fostering a love of the English language. Dickens, at the age of 12, was forced to pay for uh, his family's board along with his other siblings by working in a blacking warehouse where he earned six shillings a week pasting labels on pots and boot blacking. 
child labor and child labor laws in the Kingdom of Great Britain would become a major keystone of Charles's later fiction and nonfiction work. As a young man, Charles would work in the law offices of Ellis and Blackmore, attorneys of Holborn Court, as a junior clerk. He would go on from there to become a freelance reporter. Much of his early work in reporting focused on the law and the way in which the law victimized the poor and destitute of the country. Eventually, he would begin publishing novels in a serial format, starting with the Pickwick Papers and moving on quickly to his classic Oliver Twist. His success skyrocketed once these books were published, and the young Queen Victoria herself read both Pickwick and Oliver Twist and discussed them with members of her staff and cabinet. He would go on to publish A Christmas Carol in 1843. A Christmas Carol, whose full published title is A Christmas Carol in Prose, Being a Ghost Story of Christmas, came about as the result of Dickens' touring of a Cornish tin mine in 1843. While there, he was angered to see children working in appalling conditions, and thereafter he read a harrowing report on the state of child labor in the country of England. Horrified by what he had seen and what he had read, Dickens planned to publish an inexpensive political pamphlet, which he was tentatively going to title an appeal to the people of England on behalf of the poor man's child. But on consideration, he thought that a piece of fiction aimed at the Christmas season might be more effective in spreading the message that he wanted to deliver. He began work on A Christmas Carol in October of 1843. While suffering from severe financial issues and the possibility of a lowered salary due to the low sales of his books, he spent six feverish weeks putting pen to paper, and when he emerged, he had penned A Christmas Carol, a book which almost immediately became a roaring success both in England and in the United States. The book was universally well-received and has remained in print consistently since it was initially published. It also holds the distinction of having a profound influence on the modern perception of the Christmas holiday. Charitable giving increased after its publication by a noticeable amount, and it even popularized the phrase, Merry Christmas. Thanks for sticking in there for this little history lesson on the basic background of A Christmas Carol. We're going to take a short break here, and when we come back, uh, we'll be coming back to my conversation with my co-host, James, about the novella itself. So stick around. If you're anything like me, you've been listening to podcasts pretty much as long as podcasts have been a thing, and you've always dreamed that one day you would find a topic you were really passionate about, and you would make that dream podcast yourself. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, when everybody and their mom and their mom's dog has a podcast, and there are so many different podcast hosting platforms to choose from, it can be a little bit difficult to find something that fits both your needs and your budget. And that is where Anchor comes in. If you are someone just breaking into the podcast scene and you're looking for a place to uh, get started hosting your podcast, Anchor is a great choice. For starters, it's totally free. 
There's no charge to host the files that you need for your podcast. It also has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So if you're someone who hasn't broken into using GarageBand or Audacity or a more professional program to record your podcast... Anchor has all of the tools you need to record right from your phone or computer. Anchor also provides seamless distribution to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms, so it's really easy for you to reach a broad audience. If you're looking to monetize your podcast, you can do so with no minimum listenership through Anchor. Just record an ad and put a sponsorship segment in your show, and you're good to go. It's everything that you need to make a podcast right in one place. If you want to get started recording that podcast you've always dreamed about today, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us through uh, me reading highlights from a Wikipedia article about Charles Dickens. Hopefully, uh, this next piece of conversation will be equally as thrilling. John, 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 you're a teacher and you went to Wikipedia? Listen, James, I'm off the clock right now. <laughs> uh, I'm willing to accept Wikipedia as a, a reputable source for my podcast that probably no one will listen to. It's fine. I'll listen to it, John. <laughs> well, thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate that. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, like I said before the break, we are going to talk about A Christmas Carol. Yes. A Christmas Carol, the first original OG A Christmas Carol. This won't be the last time that we talk about A Christmas Carol on this podcast, but it'll definitely be the most officialist time we talk about it. I don't know if you can get any more official than this one. A Christmas Carol, which was published in 1843, is actually officially titled A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas, which is kind of a mouthful of a title. I think I understand why the snappier A Christmas Carol has kind of stuck around. Yeah, I think it flows better. Yeah, but this is definitely, uh, you know, if you look at a lot of literature from this time, uh, uh, that whole brevity is the soul of wit idea really didn't stick uh, from Shakespeare's day to the Victorian period. Yeah. The Victorians really, really, really love their wordy prose. And Charles Dickens is no exception, as we'll see on the very first page of the story. So we begin with Stave One, Marley's Ghost. John, what does that mean? What does Save One mean or whatever that word was? So uh, I, I actually had to do a little bit of research on this because it, this book is the only place where I have seen uh, stave, S-T-A-V-E, used to kind of denote uh, a section of a text. It's more commonly used in music, kind of like a, a musical staff or a musical stave, um, or in uh, movements of poetry from a certain period of history. But for whatever reason, Charles Dickens chooses to divide his story into five sections, and each of those sections is called a stave. Uh, for our purposes, you can think of it as a chapter. There are five chapters in this book. Interesting. So, so, so that's a term that's more used with music. Yes. So, ah, so he, this is ah, okay. I, I, we'll talk about that later. That's cool. That's so, uh, is is the revelation you're having right now that the title is like a Christmas Carol, and he's dividing it up like verses of music? John, I'm a, I'm, I might not be a smart man, 
Forrest Gump, but uh, but I know what a Christmas Carol means. Okay. <laughs> I'm feeling no. I'm actually feeling really dumb right now because I spent a lot of time thinking about like why would he do this? Like what is the what is the meaning? What does it mean? Um, and he's like, it's like a bit. That's interesting. That 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 that's that is uh, that's a choice, Charles. That is a choice. <laughs> well, the next choice that uh, Charles Dickens makes, or the first choice rather in this story, is to elaborate on the fact that Jacob Marley is dead. Mm-hmm. He is very dead. He's so dead that he inspired the title of a whole entire podcast about how dead he is uh, in this podcast. He is so dead that Dickens spends a minute. (laughs) I timed it out. So just for frame of reference, audience, I have dyslexia and dysgraphia. So I uh, listened to an uh, audio recording of the original text and I timed it out. It's a full-on just minute of him just ranting about how dead Jacob Marley is. There's one point where he even questions why one might employ the metaphor of a doornail to describe how dead someone is when obviously a coffin nail would be like a more direct metaphor. Right. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. It was one of these moments where I, when I was doing my reading of it recently where I was like, I was very determined that the audiobook version I recorded of this was going to be unabridged, that I was going to do the whole thing because I'm a purist like that. And I got about midway through kind of the first or second stave before I was like, I really wish I had done the abridged version because Charles Dickens has a way of sort of meandering off into these asides, which while they are very well written, tend to belabor the point, at least in my opinion. But that's me, you know, criticizing one of the greatest writers of a generation. Look, you want there to be more money going to charity? He's going to tell you why there needs to be more money going to charity. And if he has to go on for a minute to talk about Jacob Marley being dead and how that relates to dead as a doornail, he's going to do it. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. So uh, one of the things that we learn about Uh, Jacob Marley is that basically the only person who attended his funeral, the person who kind of handled his, his last rites was his business partner, one Ebenezer Scrooge described in this text as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. There are no punches pulled in the description of Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. They don't paint him in a favorable light. No, yeah, it's he is uh, in many ways not a particularly nuanced character. He is greedy and morose and miserly. Um, in the text itself, we get kind of glimpses of like uh, the the human being that he could be, or maybe that there are these like layers of complexity to him. But I feel like a lot of the complexity that we see in Ebenezer Scrooge comes from the way various actors have portrayed him in various adaptations and less from the text itself. So John, I don't know if we want to get into this a little bit later when we get to the gravestone, but I want to point out right now that the uh, Dickens makes reference of the sign above the, uh, the, the, the business that him and uh, Scrooge ran the money loaning business um, that both names are still up there. Um, 
and I don't know why, but I had I just I I think it connects back to the fi the finale of the story. I feel like the fact that there are two names up there, and I'll go into a little bit later. But I just want the reader to take note that this moment, Dickens makes he really lays in the fact that there are two names on the sign, and and Scrooge could have taken that down. Now, did he take it down because he's cheap? Did he not? I'm sorry, let me take that back. Did he not repaint the sign? Did he not make a new sign because he's cheap? Or is there maybe would, another I, reason? Or maybe I would I would argue that it's because well, and what's beautiful about literature is it can be both things, right? It can right. be like a metaphor. I think it also definitely is about how cheap he is because we will come to find that Scrooge is a very cheap uh, for a guy who reportedly is is somewhat comfortably wealthy. Uh, he does not spend his money. Money and the acquisition of money is kind of his singular passion and. It is to the point that even, you know, when his his clerk, Bob Cratchit, uh, has an inkwell freeze on his desk, he is unwilling to sacrifice even more than one lump of coal to try to heat up the office. So I'm sorry, um, we got to pause for a second. We just brought in the character, my man, my favorite, Bob Cratchit. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Bob Cratchit. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Jimmy, what do you like about Bob Cratchit? Talk I love Bob Cratchit because he is the one of the nicest, funniest. Okay, not the funniest. He is one of the. He he's an everyman, right? And I, I'm I'm a sucker for those characters. But usually, when they do an everyman, they try to make them like, you know, like these like heroes that we need to look up to, right? Like these. And like they're carved out of granite, and like like they've got like they're they're handsome, beautiful. Bob Cratchit is none of those things. He's not that smart. He's not that beautiful. And we'll go into we'll go into the description of the Cratchit family as well. <laughs> Very nice, Dickens. But <laughs> he's just an average, normal guy. And he's he's not he's not too smart. He's not too whatever. He's just a dude trying to make it through the eighteen hundreds. I, I that's a struggle that I can root and I that is back it up. That is somebody going through that that I can cheer for and root for. And the fact that he's got to put up with Scrooge day in day out just to be broke for his family, that's a hero. So Bob Cratchit, one of my favorite characters. We're gonna love on Bob Cratchit a little bit in this podcast. I have a feeling. Darn, darn right we are. Um, yeah, it's funny because we're going to see two characters in pretty short order here who have like an inordinate amount of patience for Ebenezer Scrooge. Mm -hmm. Um, so to start off with his clerk, Bob, who we never, uh, there's no point in the text where Bob says like a bad word about Scrooge. We really don't get the impression that he like speaks ill of him. In fact, I think, uh, you know, we'll get there in a minute, but I believe he raises a toast to him at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other character who almost like weaponizes the way in which he refuses to be impacted by, by Scrooge's curmudgeonly ways is Scrooge's nephew, Fred, who is uh, the first character to speak in this story, who enters the scene uh, kind of bursting into Scrooge's counting house, bellowing Merry Christmas at the top of his lungs and inviting Scrooge to dinner, um, to Christmas dinner. Uh, Scrooge, there's a really funny line. Like, there's a line that I laugh at every time because 
Dickens does not come right out and say that Scrooge tells his nephew to go to hell, but he has this line that's like, uh, Scrooge told him he would see him in, quote, that extremity first. And I find that, like, so funny. I don't like I don't know if it would be funnier if Scrooge was just like, I'll see you in hell first in the actual text itself. Or if Dickens kind of appealing to like a, a hoity toity Victorian audience by writing that kind of very insulting line in such a roundabout way. I don't know. I just find it really amusing. I, I, I think that that line, it's interesting in the hands of Dickens. It's playful and it's, you know, it's uh, it's a very, you know, it's a little jab, right? You played that scene, and I'm sure we'll have versions where it is said, right? I'm, I'm sure they're out there. Um, I think most versions do, because, like, Scrooge says it. Like, the implication in the text is that Scrooge tells his nephew, I'll see you in hell before I sit across a Christmas dinner table with you. Right. Um, so uh, there are definitely versions where he actually says it. But, um, but the point being, like, that's... like. That ain't like, you know, subtle or no, he's got a good heart. No, I'll see you in hell. Scrooge laying it all out on the line. He is not yeah. hiding his feelings here for yeah. anything. So I feel like this is the scene that sets up for us the the philosophical discussion of this text around Christmas because Fred comes in and his basic attitude is like, look, I'm not the richest guy in the world. I can't always like afford to do the nicest things at Christmas, but like Christmas has never made me any richer but it's like a time of you know caring for your fellow man and like togetherness and um joining one another as fellow passengers to the grave and not just like you know penny pinching and trying to like get one over on each other and scrooge on the other hand is is um i mean in a way his rationale is practical right because he's saying in the text basically um what like it is victorian england like we are in a period of of an incredible economic divide what is the point of having this holiday where you are going to spend all this money that you don't have um finding yourself um a year older not an hour richer um scrooge kind of looks at it in these very black and white terms he's like this is not going to benefit you personally in any way why on earth would you want to celebrate it and he sums that up, John, with the phrase "bah humbug," which is a phrase uh, to talk about uh, something that is dishonest or a hoax, or it can be simply used in jest. Uh, I think that maybe is more of a more modern interpretation of that uh, term, humbug. Sure. Um, but uh, this is a big this a uh, humbug. I think we should talk about this. This is probably besides the actual story, maybe the biggest thing to come out of this text that is, is this word surviving this very, very Victorian sounding word humbug uh, surviving out of this uh, moment in history. Yeah. Oh yeah. 100%. That was actually, it's funny. I didn't include that in my original notes, but um, the phrase bah humbug is like part of the cultural zeitgeist specifically because of this, like, Screw like it almost doesn't mean anything anymore because when we hear the phrase bah humbug, all we can think of is like person who does not like Christmas, right? Like that's <laughs> literally if you put those two words together. Um, oh, John, trust me, I've been trying to use humbug uh, more recently <laughs> everywhere I go. That's humbug. That's humbug, you know? And a little thing about the word humbug and other phrases like huckster and stuff like that. These were words that were used uh, in place of saying someone was a liar. 
because of uh, you didn't want to be accused of slander, you know? So you that there just a little bit of history there on like the original use of the words before this right here. Sure. Well, okay. So, so moving forward, basically um, Fred kind of stands down his, his uncle who gives him a hard time. um, And he sort of finishes it off with saying like, well, uncle, you know, you keep Christmas, uh, you keep Christmas the way you want to keep Christmas. But um, I say, God bless it. It's this like great time of year and happy new year. And he leaves. Fred gives a speech there that, and he, and, and of course Dickens knows what he's doing. Cause he puts it in the text. He gives a passionate plea and justification for Christmas. He stands up and says, this is why Christmas needs to be a thing. This is why we need to have this in our lives. He gives this beautiful, you know, argument in, in for the cause of the season, right? For why we need to have this time of year. And you feel like there should be an applause break there. And there is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bob Cratchit. Our, our boy Bob <laughs> coming in clutch with the applause, almost getting himself fired. Yeah! <laughs> but he's just like, it's so good. He just gets so caught up in that moment. Bob um, is the every person. He is the one yeah. there listening to this. I mean, like, Darn right. That's exactly why we need Christmas. Get on you, Fred. So Fred leaves and uh, his departure is kind of uh, uh, met with the ingress of two gentlemen who are asking alms for the poor. Um, And I think this is like if if him being kind of grouchy to his nephew and his clerk about Christmas wasn't enough to clue you into like what kind of person Scrooge is. Scrooge basically tells these guys that like, it's pointless to collect money for the poor because there are prisons and workhouses. Yeah. You, you get the sense like the first sentiment, like Scrooge's first like opinion of Christmas. I don't agree with it. I, John, I'm pretty sure you don't agree with it, but there are people in the world that could see the logic in what Scrooge is saying there. Right. I don't, Well, I think, yeah, you look at like the consumerism of the holiday. Right. Right. And I think that's like a lot of people who are like cynical about the Christmas season, the spirit. Yeah. Are cynical about the Christmas season because they see it as a time for just like avarice and rampant spending and, uh, you know, people buying a bunch of pointless crap, like, and which I get, like, I think there's a part of me that looks at the season is very much like, yeah, this is like the, the commercialism of Christmas is, is garbage. Like this, that's the worst part of it. Right. Um, and Fred is like the opposite end of the coin where he's like, well, yeah, sure. There's all that, but like, it's, that's not what it's about, but Scrooge can't see that anyway. Right. These gentlemen come in, right? And like you said, you know, one could be forgiven for saying, well, Scrooge was kind of right in that first scene. But in this scene, he in short order says, well, poor people should go to prisons and workhouses, like put the poor people in prison. That's what they're there for. Like, they don't need my money. They put them in jail or put them to work. And then when when these guys say, well, a lot of people would rather die than go there. His response, James, is what? If they're going to die, they better do it and decrease the surplus population. Ouch. That's rough stuff. That Mr. Burns is created <laughs> in that line. Like that is the that is the 20th and the 21st century greedy miser is 
born in that sentence and sentiment. At the risk of alienating like half of our prospective audience, I feel like that was just the slogan of the the uh, now? Republican National Convention. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, eat the rich, but anyway. Uh... <laughs> I would l- let me be clear right now for people who are listening to this podcast. If if you've come to this podcast and and are hoping for uh, two people to be totally politically neutral, uh, you. <laughs> There are other podcasts that you can listen to. It's hard to divorce the politics from the story about poverty and well, and wealth and uh, morality, John, especially in 2020. John, you quoted in the beginning that this was originally going to be a pamphlet. This was going to be a, a, a political essay or, or, or a newsletter going out as a plea to save, you know, children. And that's a... That's a political statement. This is a political work. We're going to talk a little bit yeah. about politics here, friends. If you can handle yeah, you it. heard that. This is an inherently political text. So at me on Twitter, I guess, so I know who to block. So anyway, uh, this scene uh, like firmly establishes for us that not only does Scrooge not care about the Christmas season, but he seems pretty disillusioned when it comes to humanity. Uh, these guys leave. Uh, he does not make a donation, as you, you probably gathered. Oh. And uh, at this point, uh, it's kind of closing time. Uh, the clock is ringing. Scrooge seems a little bit loath to be ending his business day, but such is life. You know, the business day has to end sometime. And at this point, Bob Cratchit uh, uh, asks for um, Christmas Day off. And Scrooge anticipates it too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so he knows it's coming. Like, he's not he's not completely oblivious to the fact that it's Christmas. He's like, I gotta give it to him. It's the it's the one thing he's gonna ask for all year long, probably. So. So do you read this? I'm curious. Do you read him giving Bob Christmas Day off as, like, a, a hint of altruism? Because I've seen it played that way. Um, or is he just doing it because it's, like, the social custom? Like, does he know literally no one's gonna come in on Christmas Day to do business? I think it's surrendering to it. He's surrendering to the season at that moment. As as little as he can surrender to it, right? He is. And you're right. Yeah. And you're right, John. Many different versions, they play it off like maybe there's a little smile there. Maybe he knows what he's doing. But I think at the end of the day, he really just is like, there's no point. I'll actually probably lose money by having you come in and work. So fine take the day i don't give you know whatever so basically he finishes off giving uh the day off to Cratchit, going like all right i'm the only person who gets that this is bs but fine take the day yeah yeah um and just be here all the earlier the next morning which is like a little like Chekhov's time card i guess i did I ne- for this story I, I never really picked up on that until i really got into the fact later on yeah there's a that's a that's that's a that's a setup for a joke later. Yeah. So we get like a little vignette of uh, at this point, sort of London settling down for Christmas. And uh, we see, you know, Bob Cratchit immediately leaves work and is so excited to have the day off the next day that he like rides a sled down a hill with a bunch of kids that are playing out in the street in honor of the day. So Bob's like fully sold. He's a Christmas celebrator. He is all of us the last day of work before Christmas break. 
And Scrooge, almost in like direct contrast to this, eats his like same crappy meal in the same crappy restaurant that he usually eats in Mm -hmm. and then sort of wanders home to this kind of strange back alley house where he lives. Um, And it's very grim and cold and dark and he's fumbling with his keys. And at this point, uh, we get sort of our first hint of of a ghostly visitation because looking down at this knocker on his door one of these like big brass knockers mm-hmm. he does not see a knocker he sees the face of the extremely very dead <laughs> no take backsies jacob martin <laughs> yep we let we, we we made it as clear as we possibly could this guy is dead but there's his face on the door knocker Connecting back to doornail probably early on, like dead as a doornail, door knocker. I uh, oh, that's interesting. Look at Charles, man. Yeah, really, really. These interconnected, multi-level metaphors. Um, I, there's a part of me that wishes in this moment that he was like, I would like to reiterate that Jacob Barley is extra, very much super dead. He's so, so dead. Like, do the whole Monty Python bit. Yeah, like a Family Feud episode with, uh, we did a survey of 100 people on who's dead. And uh, Jacob Marley, survey says, ding! Number one, Jacob Marley is dead. I don't know. Yeah, this is always a moment that, like, really spooked me out. Because I think it's it's such a, it, like, such a relatable kind of situation to be in. So anyway... And then Scrooge reacts like appropriately. He's like a little bit taken aback by this Mm -hmm. and he goes inside and um, it sort of describes him looking at the back of the door as if like the back of Marley's head is going to be poking through the other side. Yeah, that's the confirmation. That is after you've had a moment like that, you're a little bit more cautious for the few seconds after it. But if nothing else happens, you're going to be okay, you know, but you got to do some research. Yeah. So he goes upstairs um, and like the old crusty man he is, he, and he's got like a little bit of a head cold. Uh, he's eating a, a pot of gruel, which sounds gross. Um, John, because it is gross. It's extremely <laughs> gross. Have you ever had gruel? I have not had gruel. <laughs> the very name. I've never had gruel. Me. I don't need to have gruel. You know why? Because it's gruel. It's gross. Yeah. And it's horrible. And I don't want it. We're going to get, assuming anyone actually listens to this podcast, we're going to get emails that are like to someone's like foodie blog where they're like, we made like organic free range gruel. Here's the the secret. And you know what? God bless you. Enjoy it. I think it sounds gross, disgusting. And because it is. Please do not send us your gruel recipes or do honestly, like. If you are listening to this and you want to send us a gruel recipe, maybe we'll read some off on the next episode. No, <laughs> we're gonna get. Gruel. You don't want gruel, gruel corner to be a bit. Because John, I know how this ends. I've uh, we've we've lived a life. We've listened to podcasts. We're gonna get a gruel recipe, and then I'm gonna have to eat the damn gruel, and I don't want that. Okay, I don't want gruel right. in my life, John. <laughs> Please, please don't send Jimmy your gruel recipes. Anyway. What was the food like in prison? Gruel. Sandwiches. Gruel omelets. Nothing but gruel. Plus, you can eat your own hair. Wow. Prison sounds horrible. Uh, So Scrooge goes upstairs and he's eating his gruel. Uh, There's actually a moment right before this where he thinks he sees a hearse kind of driving up the stairs ahead of him, which is the worst that sucks i'm not it's not okay 
There's literally, I cannot imagine a thing that I would want to see less on a dark night alone in my crappy house than that. That What's funny about the hearse up the, is like, he, he still goes, he still goes up the stairs, you know, like he still does it, but gosh darn. Yeah. It's not as clear. He's like, he's only kind of thinks he sees it in like the gloom ahead of him. But anyhow, um, so he's sitting up here in the dark and you, there's these bells in the house. It's one of these, I guess, old houses that had like bells down to the servants quarters. Um, and Scrooge surprisingly doesn't have any live in servants. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess that's like an extravagance, right? To like pay for someone to serve you. No, he doesn't have anybody there all the time. But he does have people yeah. working for him, though, right? Well, yeah, we we do know that he has like a like a charwoman and a and a laundress and that sort of thing. But the, there's no one in the house right now. Right. Um, at least he didn't think there was. But these bells begin ringing, and now he's hearing this noise of of thumping and clanking chains being dragged up from his basement and uh, his front parlor and coming up the stairs and he's in his chair doing that. Like, no, nope, don't believe it. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, so, so not to, not to put you on the spot. You're, you're currently living alone, right? Yes. Um, oh, if you were, if you were in, <laughs> if you were in the, the shoes of Ebenezer Scrooge, right. And you have this bell that's literally never been used in your house ever. And it is a dark night. You're sitting in front of your fire and that bell just starts to ring on a scale of one to 10. How likely are you to jump out the nearest window? Um, John. So I am currently just for reference. Uh, I have a very, I'm living in a house, a big house all by myself. Uh, I was living with a family members. They recently moved. So I'm here taking care of their house. And it's, it, it is a very, it's, it's a big house and I'm here all by my lonesome and any noise produced by anything. I am like, what the heck was that? Is this a home invasion? What's going on? I need, and during the holidays, I was considering being haunted. Just saying, I was like, Oh God, here it comes. Talking about doing this podcast, I'm going to get three ghosts. I don't even know what for, but here they come. So uh, through the door, uh, through the door, not like the door doesn't open directly through the door comes Jacob Marley, who we were led to believe emphatically is very, very much dead. But here he comes floating through the door. Yeah, Jacob Marley's Uh, dead. How is Jacob Marley coming through the door? (laughs) (laughs) How how is it possible? I wonder if it has anything to do with the title of this being Marley's Ghost. So Marley's Ghost comes through the door, wrapped up in chains that seem to be made up of cash boxes and all of these sorts of accoutrements of uh, their their money lending business. And um, at first, uh, Scrooge's reaction is you know um, to disbelieve it, which I think most sane people would be like, okay, this is clearly not real. What's happening here. Um, He invites the ghost to sit down, which I think is his reaction is interesting. Like he doesn't panic and flip out. He sort of tries to deal with it in, in the same rational way that he approaches the idea of Christmas, which is like, okay, there's a, a logic and a, a black and white to this that I just have to suss out. And then this will all make sense. Like this is, indigestion i ate something that doesn't agree with me and now i'm hallucinating scrooge's attempt um, at a dad joke which i think is 
so sad it's funny there's more about gravy than grave about you oh yeah yeah <laughs> yes the the original the original dad joke. original dad joke I'll cut him up scrooge ebenezer scrooge <laughs> ebenezer scrooge he's like bob cratchit take my wife please anyway um do you think that so th- there's sort of a moment where Marley challenges him and is like, do you believe in me or not? And Scrooge says that he does and that he's willing to hear him because the ghost is like screaming and shaking his chains and doing all this creepy crap. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you think that Scrooge, like just based on your reading, do you think Scrooge ever actually believes what he's seeing here? Or do you think that he kind of reaches a point where he's like, I just have to appease whatever this is? Um, it's hard to, to say. There are some moments later on that I think he does start to believe what he's seeing right. But I think Scrooge is, for all of Scrooge's negative faults, he's a realist, right? That is his one thing. He looks at the world, he sees what it is, and he puts a bad perspective on it. But he's you know, he's a realist about, it. like, you got to do this for that, blah, 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 blah. That's his way of looking at it, right? He's like you say. He's trying to rationalize it. Do, does he start to believe what he's saying? What Marley is saying? I don't know. But what I do know is he's missed his friend. Yeah, I think that's a fa- that's a fair characterization. Because um, the flow of the conversation that he's about to have with Marley slowly becomes so familiar and like just shooting the stuff between your friends, right? Like just uh, just a casual conversation about very non-casual things, right? But it's a second hand you would get with a friend only after years of working with them. Not even being friends with them, but working with them and like seeing them day in and day out. And the way they start sitting at the fire and just talking, I think that is... That is Scrooge at that moment. Maybe not accepting what he's seeing as real, but indulging in the fact that he would want it to be almost. Yeah, I I think that could be. I mean, we definitely have him sort of reference like Marley's past. Now, so this is my favorite section of the book. I really, really love the character of Jacob Marley. Uh, I like what he brings to the table because we've already seen Fred kind of introduce this idea of like, this is what Christmas is really about, Mm. right? Christmas is about... Um, you know, this time of togetherness and giving and fellow men and stuff. And we've seen what Scrooge is about, which is this, this very pragmatic, like, you have to make money, right? Like, why did you get married? You don't have any money. Um, Why are you celebrating Christmas? Christmas doesn't do anything but make you poorer. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And now Marley is bringing in the, the sort of spiritual aftermath of Scrooge's philosophy, which is this uh, one of the more unique forms of uh, eternal damnation that I think exists in in literature, because I think a lot of times we see the the idea of hell in literature and and in film presented as like a physical kind of torture, where like you are bodily tortured and the pain is so intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do not get the impression that Marley is in physical pain, but he's in a greater kind of emotional, moral pain where he has come to realize that he wasted his life on things that do not matter, 
that he that his focus for his entire life was wrong. And now that he's realized that he can do nothing with that knowledge. I Yeah, I think that is it's a very it's a different interpretation of hell. You know, it is it's not Dante's Inferno with torture and, and different layers of that. It's more about like you're saying, it's just I did this to myself. You know, I, 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 I led a bad life. I put value in the worst things and I treated people without compassion and just took advantage of them or had no pity on them, you know, and please correct us if we're wrong here, friends. But this is all Dickens here. This idea of the chain, correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I, I, I don't know. I'm sure it's hard to to track where an author comes up with like kind of the motifs and images that they use. But basically this chain is made up of, of uh, the morally bankrupt decisions that Marley made during his lifetime. So each link is a person that he uh, defrauded or a, uh, a, a sin that he committed, a person he cheated. And what he tells Scrooge is, um, you know, you you may recognize this because the the chain that you're going to wear is like this, but the next level up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my chain is a starter Pokemon. Your chain is Blastoise. Like, it's not going to be good for you if you can't figure out how to change this. Now, this this brings Ooh, up an interesting point, right? So, Guilt! <laughs> so, uh, what's interesting about this is uh, there are definitely versions of this story I have seen where Marley coming to Scrooge is like Marley's second chance at redemption, but that is not the way that it's characterized in the text. No. Like coming to Scrooge is part of Marley's penance. Like part of his punishment is that he has to come to Scrooge and convince Scrooge to make a different choice. Um, and he even says that he's not actually sure how or why he's able to do this and that he's been trying to contact Scrooge for like many, many nights that he's sat beside him, which is uh, creepy. That's also not ideal. That's not great. What's creepy about just a dead guy sitting next to you in the dark? What's uh, And you're not knowing it. What's creepy about that, John? Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> Basically, what Marley tells him is that he's got this one chance, so he's going to be visited by three spirits over the course of three nights, and that these spirits are going to present a chance and hope for Scrooge to escape the fate that Marley has, which is to wander eternally through the world, witnessing things that he could have shared but cannot, like people he could have helped, ways in which he could have been a positive influence on the world in which he can't. That's his torture. Um, I think what's interesting about that, and you were kind of going to it, John, earlier, about how, like, there is not a, and and some versions do say this, that if Scrooge is redeemed, uh, Marley is redeemed, there's no proof of that. There's no suggestion here that Marley is going to have a second chance. It's just Marley is allowed to do this now, but has wanted to help his... Marley is probably the closest thing Scrooge has ever had to a friend. And and probably also for Marley, right? Uh, yeah, I would say so, probably. So it, Scrooge was the only person at his funeral. We know that from the opening. So I think what happens is it's he was there. So he's probably there at the funeral. He sees that Scrooge is the only one there at his funeral. 
But he also sees that Scrooge is going to be the same. It's going to just be just like him. And he just can't allow the one good person in his life to end up like him. So for Mark, it's actually a pretty, it's terrifying that it took death to get that to Marley. But Marley does have that feeling after dying. He's like, I've got to save this one guy. He can't end up like me. Well, and I think that that, like, the the fact that Marley cannot be redeemed, that Marley's punishment is is eternal and sealed, um, and the fact that Scrooge is kind of old, like, Scrooge doesn't have a lot of time left, oh. given what time period we're talking about, given the fact that he's probably, like, not well cared for. He doesn't take great care of himself. And worse Right, based on... Yeah, and he's he's his sort of like um, Marley says earlier on, like when I died, this my chain is my life, right? My all my all my misdeeds, all my guilt. This chain is my life. This, your chain was this length seven years ago when I died. Yeah, and it's just getting yeah. worse, and it's going to be worse for Scrooge when he dies. Right. So I think that that really drives home, like we Scrooge needs to change. Something needs to happen, and I think even Scrooge in his state of kind of half believing that this is a real thing can see like, I don't want to be this, like whatever this thing is wandering through my door, chained up howling and screaming and being, being kind of um, terrifying. That's not what I want to be. So he's like receptive to the idea that there is this hope. I think that like most people who are, are in that sort of state of, of agnosticism when it comes to to morality of this kind. Um, There is a, there's a proving period that he's going to have to go through before he's like, yes, absolutely. I'll do whatever you say and I'll change my ways, but we'll see that kind of over the next few um, sections of the text. So at this point, Marley basically tells him like, you're not going to see me again for your own sake. Remember this, interaction and then he sort of opens a window and drifts out and scrooge looks out and what he sees is a a night full of phantoms like marley which really punctuates the severity of this and the the general tone is like these spirits are seeing like poor people in the streets at one point they describe like a woman with a child kind of huddled up in a doorway trying to stay warm and a couple of these spirits that are desperately trying to help her but they can't they're they're incapable at this point because um their punishment is to see these ways in which that they could have a positive influence and they can't which i think is like the most haunting image in the text yeah i i i don't know if i just never noticed that part today or it took uh for reference i listened to the tim curry one on audible and um when it got to that moment it was it, it you know I, I I said earlier on that it it was a new it was a new type of hell that was created here in this moment that might be for somebody who did horrible things in their lives but now but now either by some sort of external or just seeing the plain facts of life right we don't know but like seeing how much good they could have done in their life and they didn't do constantly that is. That is a punishment that fits the crime, but is still terrifying. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. It it I I you feel sympathy, but at the same point, you get like you done did this to yourself. But I wouldn't wish it on him. I wouldn't wish him on him. You know. But like they create. It's it's 
John, this is yeah, such a good book. It's a good very story. Good. It's really, really quite good. Um, <laughs> like years ago, I saw this thing on Rocco's Modern Life where they were making fun of Dracula. And they said, done to death, right? And it's true for Dracula. And it is true for this a little bit. But there's a reason they're done to death. There's a reason why stories like this keep getting told over and over again. It's because they're just that darn good. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And they maintain a lot of relevance. Like this scene is relevant no matter what, because we continue to live in a world where where there are haves and have nots and and one percenters and the rest of us. And this question of like, what is the responsibility that the wealthy have towards the impoverished? It continues to haunt us as a society. Like we we still hundreds of years after the story was written, have not resolved that question. And John, how many versions of this story made for profit, right? Just as a cash grab, include that part of the message. I mean, in like in essence, that, all of them, because like you you almost can't get away from it. But, but this moment, but this moment in particular, right? Because you can make Marley the boogeyman. Right. He's just one bad rich guy. But when you look out there and you see all the rich people, all the people of privilege that could have done something that are punished, how many rich people have put that in this version when they produced it and put it on television or a radio play? How many times like there you could you could do this story and we'll see versions of this as we go through, John, where this story is done flowery and lovely without getting to that crux of the story. Right. Right. You, there are ways that. There are ways that a capitalist can tiptoe around this story and make it, oh, I'm not a bad guy. Yeah, no, it's that's a fair characterization. Well, James, at this point, um, Scrooge closes the window, gives us a a hearty humbug and uh, kind of exhausted with the, the evening spent in the presence of a ghost collapses into his bed. And that ends stave one so i have a proposal james Uh, at time of recording we are uh, and granted i'll edit this down but we are a couple hours in and we have only covered kind of the background and the first save what say we make this a two-parter and we begin in our next episode with the first of the three spirits you know what, John? My only complaint with that is that we don't make it a three-parter because there are three ghosts, but I'll let it slide. That's okay? fair. That's fair. Well, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this kind of first uh, voyage into the text of A Christmas Carol with us. Um, uh, we hope you come back and join us next week when we um, begin to cover uh, the first ghostly visitation by the three spirits. Um, yeah, I, and just to give a like, I know we're going into stuff that people already know, but we really got to establish like what is like we all have to be on the same page of this text. So we're going to be going over the little details. So later on, when we get to a ver- other versions, we can be like, ah, they didn't do this thing that we think they should be doing and stuff like that. So please forgive us if we're a little long winded here going through a story that uh, 
You all yeah, know. I think most of us know the broad strokes of this story. Uh, our goal here is to have a good baseline so that when we do discuss versions later down the road, we're able to kind of reference back to the common language that uh, we developed here in these first couple of episodes. So um, hopefully you'll come back and you'll join us then. Um, I'm John. I'm James. Next week, we're going to be talking about A Christmas Carol. And as Tiny Tim observed... God bless us, everyone. God bless us, everyone. Right, let's do it one last time. And as Tommy, uh, uh, Tommy, <laughs> <laughs> and as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.